0: We are in Exodus chapter seven tonight. Oh, I didn't put that up there. Exodus chapter seven. That's where we are. We're going to begin reading in verse fourteen this evening. Exodus chapter seven in verse fourteen. I. Uh, uh, we are continuing with the plagues, and uh, we have uh, we looked at the beginning of those plagues, of course, where there was that demonstration with the snake. Uh, and the, the rod, and we talked about that. And, of course, there were some warnings of the things that were uh, going to be coming up in the near future. Then we also, last week, we looked at an overview of the plagues, where we, uh, we looked at the purpose, why, uh, why God chose to use these ten plagues in order to eventually bring out His children, Israel. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind as we continue to go through, that there was a reason for each and every one of these. We talked about the the meaning of the word signs and wonders, which are used here uh, in Exodus. And he talked about his signs and wonders, and there was another word that he brought up referring to the plagues, and that was judgments. And so we we hear these uh, these ten plagues being referred to as signs, wonders, and judgments. And we we kind of discussed what each of those were talking about and, of course, the signs and wonders, wonders just means something that is, uh, you know, a demonstration of supernatural power. If, if you are in wonder of something, then you're just amazed at what has happened. So uh, many of the things that we see, of course, uh, I think they could be described as wonders. Where we said signs points more specifically not just to the power, but the signs refer to the purpose And so in the plagues, we do see both. We see signs and wonders. We have demonstrations of the power of God, of the wonders of God, but then at the same time... Uh, there's also this this streamline of purpose that's being that's been embedded into the uh, the plagues as well, and so it's important for us to think about why use the plagues, why why does this specific plague, uh, you know, why was it important uh, for God to use this specific thing in Egypt? And so we looked at last week that there are a couple of of reasons why perhaps certain of these uh, plagues were given. And uh, and of course we we talked about how that most all these or all these plagues really were an attack a direct attack direct judgment upon the gods little g the gods of Egypt and and how they directly uh, confronted each of these different Egyptian gods and we saw we know that any any uh, polytheistic uh, nation where they worship many many gods uh, what they have they'll have several gods that, you know, maybe one God's over the sun or one God's over the sky or one God's over the water or one God's over the plants and, you know, all these other things. And so if you're, if you're wanting your crops to grow, you pray to this particular God. And if you're wanting a good harvest, then you pray for this God. If you need some rain to come in, you pray to this God. And so they have all these different gods. And what the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, what He was demonstrating through the plagues is is that I have power and authority over every single one of these things so that you don't need hump gods to pray to as long as you have the one true and living God. And, uh, and of course, that is Jehovah. And so they were to uh, to pray to Him. Are you needing that black cord? Yeah. I was going to use it tonight, but... Oh, you are? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm an to one in. Did you have took it. Okay. I oh, it's not back, back here anymore? No. Okay. We're Katie, do you know if there's another black cord? Not around. If that, if that one oh, okay. Go ahead and take that book, out. You know, Robbie's got one in his truck. One. Does he? Yeah. Okay. Let to get that one I brought in. Was out here first. All right. Sorry. So uh, anyway, we were we were talking about how that each of the plagues they uh, they attacked the the different gods of Israel and and uh, or Egypt, excuse me. And and so then we also talked about how the plagues were demonstrations of God's power to three different people groups. And I'm testing you this, morning, this evening. Uh, to, to three different uh, people groups. And we said the first one was who? God was showing who He is to, to, to Egypt, okay? So Egypt was one. And then another one to Israel. And then thirdly, it points out that these judgments were to be known across the whole world. And so uh, these judgments were a demonstration of who he is. First of all, the nation of Israel needed to know that, didn't he? And and God said to this point, they haven't known me by Jehovah, but they're going to. They're about to find out who I am. Uh, Then he also talked about how that Pharaoh in Egypt, all Egypt, was going to know, and then so that the whole world would know. And so those are just some of the things that we've discussed here lately. And we'll just go ahead and get into our plates. Uh, The one that we're going to cover tonight is the water into blood and we'll discuss that here this evening. Now, the first thing we're going to look at is the meeting in verses 14 through 18. Now, in our text, uh, Moses and Aaron had just gone to Pharaoh. They just uh, did the miracle with the uh, the rod and the serpent and all that. And, and so we pick up in verse 14. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. And so we see the condition of excuse me, Pharaoh's heart uh, in all this. And so God is arranging a meeting between uh, Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh, and uh, that's what we're looking at right now. Now the first thing we see is Pharaoh's hard heart in verses 14 through 15. Now we read 14. He says in 15, Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning, lo, he goeth out unto the water, and thou shalt stand by the river's brink against he come. And the rod which was turned to a serpent shalt thou take into thine hand. Now, although we know that the Lord assisted in hardening Pharaoh's already hard heart, got all that? It was this act of refusal to comply with God's demands that activated the first plague. So in other words, when we say that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, God didn't do anything against Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh already had a hard heart. And it was kind of like God was saying, you think you have a hard heart? Wait till I get done with it. <laughs> and so he, he hardens that, that heart that was already hard. He, uh, he strengthens that, uh, that hard heart so that, the people, that he will not let the people go. And when he acted in that manner, when he decided, I will not let them go... Then that brought on the first plague. And we talked about this was part of God's plan from the very beginning. He knew Pharaoh was going to have a hard heart. He knew Pharaoh was not going to uh, listen and all that. And so he, God is helping to prolong this process because he wants to send the ten plagues upon Egypt to demonstrate again who he is to his people, to Egypt, and to all the world. And so the world's going to know that he is the Lord without a doubt. Moses and Aaron were told to go and stand by the river's brink. In Florida, we call it the what? The bank, right, the river's bank. Against he come. Now, almost every other translation says that they were to stand there at the bank and meet him. The King James Version says, stand there against he come. I'm not really sure... uh, why it was translated that way, but, but in every other translation I've seen, it's, uh, it's to stand there at the bank and meet him. So God says that Pharaoh is going down to the water. He's going to be coming down, and so you go out there and you wait and meet him. Uh, the point is that God knew where Pharaoh was going, he knew why he was going, and he knew when he would be there, and he had a message to deliver. I think that's interesting. Uh, how would Moses and Aaron have known where Pharaoh would go down to the water? That may have been public information. But I, I find it interesting that the exact place where Pharaoh was going to go, uh, when he gets there, they're already standing there waiting on him. Why? Because God told them, go down there and wait till uh, Pharaoh gets there. And so they had this message to deliver. That is supposed to say there is some speculation as to why Pharaoh might have been going down to the river. Uh, perhaps he was going down to worship, Uh, And remember that they, I think I'm going to point this out here in a second, but they did actually worship the Nile River uh, from time to time. Maybe it was a daily ritual for him. It's something he he just already did. One commentator suggests that at this particular time of year that the pharaohs would go down to the Nile to officiate in ceremonies that commemorate the blessings brought on by the river. And so... It's believed that during this time when Moses and Aaron were talking to Pharaoh and, and uh, telling him to let the people go, this was the particular time of year when the, the Nile River would have been swelled. Of course, I mean, it was a great time for Egypt because they've got plenty of water going out. And so what they would do is, is they would go down, of course they worship the Nile, and they would have these ceremonies to the Nile and I guess just thank it for all the water it's given or the life that it's given to the land. And so uh, it's believed that, well, they know that Pharaoh would go down to do that. He would actually officiate in this ceremony. And so perhaps that might have been uh, why Pharaoh was going to be down there at a certain time. But whatever the case was, I, I'm just giving you that information. But whatever the case was, we know that God's timing was as perfect as it always is. And so God, you know, there, this wasn't haphazard again. Like we've been saying, I mean, God didn't just happen to say, today you're going to go down and, and uh, talk to Pharaoh. I mean, the timing would have been perfect, and whatever was going on in Egypt at the time, whatever Pharaoh was doing, this specific uh, sign, this specific turning water into blood happened at, at the perfect time. And I'm sure God just brought all this together uh, to have even a greater impact on the land of Egypt. We see God's hard message in verses 16 through 18. And let's read those. It says, "And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear. In other words, you tell him that the Lord God of the Hebrews had sent me to you to, to tell you these things, to tell you to let my people go. And until now, you still have not heard. You will not listen." To the, to the Lord. And so in verse 17 it says, "Thus saith the Lord, and this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is mine, uh, in my hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink the water of the river." Now Moses did not go to Pharaoh with another chance for him, or with another plea for compliance. Uh, Moses wasn't going down to bargain or negotiate with Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh's chances were over for this. And so he had already made his decision. Pharaoh had decided, I'm not letting the people go. And upon that decision, God passed the judgment. So that's where the third word comes in judgment. And so he's judging this decision through turning the water into blood Pharaoh's sin was completed the judgment was coming we find in verses 16 through 17 Uh, we find in verse 18 that the savor of the water that had been so highly reverenced and regarded would now be abhorred in the sight of all the Egyptians the savor, what I mean by that is the smell Uh, in other words, we, we find in 18 that he's going to make the water stink it's going to be horrible stinky water and it's going to, that smell is going to fill the land. And, and they're not going to drink from this water. But we can't take out of our minds how important this river was to them. Now, I guess the closest big river that we have to here is the St. John River. Now, if the St. John's River turned to blood today, nobody in here except Brother Hall will care. It's not going to affect us. We still have drinking water. We have food in the grocery stores and we don't, we don't depend on that river as much as, as they would have been depending on the Nile so for the Nile to be filled with blood, for the Nile to be undrinkable, for all of its life sources within to have died I mean this was a, this was a huge crush a huge blow to the, to the nation of Egypt and they I mean this was their main water source in the land and so this was a huge, huge deal to them. And, uh, and so the, the river that they loved so much, that they went to and depended on so much, was now going to stink in the sight of all the Egyptians. I, I worded that for a reason. We're going to get back to that later. So just take a screenshot of that and, and uh, keep it for later. Uh, but, but I am going to come back to why I worded it this way. The Lord's messages are not always messages of salvation, and that's one thing that we have to come to terms with as Christians sometimes. As far as this plague was concerned, Pharaoh seems to have been at a point of no return. Now there's other plagues coming, there's going to be other opportunities for him to let the people go, but as far as this point was concerned, there was no coming back from this water being turned to blood. This he he made a decision and God had already cast the judgment. And so there, there was no going back. Now he had initiated God's judgment through his actions. There was no deliverance from this. And so when Moses and Aaron came, uh, perhaps a couple of days before, if they had come and Pharaoh had said, uh, had maybe said no or, or was was tossing it around, they might have had a message that says, "Listen, you can get out of this. You still have a choice to make. You could say yes. I'll let the people go, and you don't have to suffer the consequences." But, but this message didn't have anything like that in there. There was no clause that let them out of this. I mean, this was, this was fixed. And so uh, they would, of course, suffer the consequences of that decision. I think it's so important because there are times in our lives... Listen, God is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but He's, he's willing that all... Would come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God gives opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be saved or to make right decisions for Him. Regardless of what that might be. But there does come a time when that point is over. When that opportunity is is gone. And if we're talking about salvation, then you know, of course that's a huge thing. But there's also different times in our lives, just just different opportunities that we're given over and over and over again to turn away from our ways, to turn away from, from our sins. And then finally there just comes a point where God says, All right, I'm sorry I have to do this. But here you go. This is this is what you've earned. And and then as a daddy, he says, Now I wouldn't do this if I didn't love you. Right? But sometimes he has to. Sometimes he has to swing the rod. Because that's the only way to get our attention. And I, I find a, uh, the same kind of circumstance here. Any, anything before we move on? On that? Let's look at the miracle in verses 19 through 21. Now in verse 19 we see the servant... It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, upon their ponds, and upon their pools of water, that they may become blood. And that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Now notice that it is still Aaron that is serving as both messenger and miracle worker. Moses receives the instructions from God, but Aaron is actually the one that carries them out. So when they go down to the water and uh, the rod hits the water, it's not Aaron, it's not Moses, excuse me. It's not Moses doing this, okay? It's, it's Aaron. Moses tells him this is what God said to do, and Aaron, acting as the mouthpiece or, or whatever, the body, he goes down and he, he touches the water... And of course, through God's power, it begins to turn into blood. We see the sight in verse 20. Uh, Let's see, it says, And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants. Now there's a couple of times it talks about there that he did all this, not in secret, but in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. this thing was not done in secret is not something that was hidden. The Lord performed this openly before all of Egypt, so that it, nobody would have any question in their mind: how did the water get this way? They would know the Lord did this. Okay, and Moses and Aaron, his servants, were uh, were there and active when all this happened. Now, some would suggest that the, the river did not actually become blood, but instead merely became red like blood. And I was reading a couple things like that. However, all things that we see here indicate that this plague was no mere illusion. The water became blood. you know the Bible doesn't say it became as blood, and I was looking at all kinds of stuff today where uh, you know different chemicals could be in the water and make it appear red, or this thing could happen and it could appear red and and there's even been some uh, I guess rivers as of late. Maybe that have turned red like that, but let's keep in mind that Satan's a great imitator, right. and if it can cast doubt, but we don't find any indication here. God, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about it, it was red like or red as blood. It says the water turned to blood. Now that actually makes sense because if the water just changes color, that's not necessarily going to kill all the fish or everything that lives in the sea is it? or in the river. But uh, with it being blood, obviously uh, no animal would be able, no water creature would be able to live in, in something like that. And we're seeing all all of the uh, the river animals uh, die uh, die off, and of course it just becomes very nasty. I mean, it was a, it was a mess. I mean, can you imagine? Blood didn't just Come out of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, this, this, was a, this was a mess all over the place. And, and, and in many different ways, it was a mess. So we'll move on, maybe. Uh, now, what turned to blood? Uh, as we read this, it looks as though, in just a, a first glance, it looks as though the river itself is, is the only thing that turned to blood. But we're going to find that uh, the water in the rivers and streams turned to blood, the water in the pools and ponds. Turned to blood. And also the water in the basins and buckets turned to blood. So all of the visible water in Egypt, it appears, turned into blood. So that there was no drinking water for them. And, uh, and of course, then again, all, all of their fish and all those things died. Y'all may remember this. I'll let you look at it for a second. Y'all remember that movie? All right, yeah. I, I really liked a, a lot of things from that movie. Just point out a couple um, that, or at least one, there at the end, after everything had turned to blood and and all that warning was given. Notice that he he picks up one of his pots and turns to his guide, and he's going to show that that you know this is just a mere trick of a magician. Uh, a magician and then he pours it out and it turns into blood itself and I can imagine some type of scene playing out like that uh, in, in Moses day as well and so this was, this was something that they could not control Pharaoh uh, and all of his gods all of his servants they couldn't fix what just happened there this was without a doubt an act of God that couldn't be changed now we see the sign and what do we say the sign points towards again a purpose right and so we see this sign being carried out in verses 20, uh, the end of verse 20 on through 21. Now it says at the end of verse 20, "...and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt." This was truly a marvelous work in the eyes of all of Egypt. Where were their gods? And this had to be a question that was going through their minds: Where are they? Where are our gods? Where is Apis, the god of the Nile? Why isn't he showing up? Uh, where, where is Isis and? Canoe, man. You know, we talked about that last week. I know I brought this up, but this had to be a question that was coming out. Where are these gods? Why are they not answering? Isn't uh, Canoe supposed to be protecting the Nile? How could he allow all these things to happen? I'm sure these were questions that were flowing and uh, and being whispered throughout all of Egypt at that time. And I think that they are uh, legit questions. Where are those gods? Well, eventually they're going to have to come to the conclusion that either their gods were on a journey or taking a nap like we talked about last week or they don't exist but the Hebrew God does because he's doing something they've never seen any other do and so uh, this was definitely a, uh, a huge sign pointed towards a, a purpose and remember we said that one of the main purposes was that they may know that Jehovah Yahweh is God I find it interesting how closely uh, the essence of Jesus' signs and miracles resemble these in Egypt. And as we go through uh, the Gospels and we look at all of Jesus' miracles, now, let's let's keep in mind that the signs and wonders that we find in Exodus and the plagues, those signs and wonders are all acts of judgment, and so they have a negative impact. But at the same time, as we're watching throughout these plagues, we're going to see that God... Yahweh, God has authority over the water. He has authority over animals. He has authority over nature. He has authority over health and sickness. He has authority over darkness and and all these different things, okay? Now, Jesus' signs, they pointed to a different purpose. Of course, they were trying to lead people not to destruction or judgment, but leading people to salvation. And so all of His signs or all of His miracles had a positive tone to them, but in the in all of his miracles Jesus showed that he has authority or power over what? Over nature, over over water. We saw him walk on the water, we saw him calm the storm, over the weather, over health and sickness, even over death itself. And so they all point towards the same goal or the or the same truth that He is God. Now I want you to think about this. What was Jesus' first? public miracle. He turned the water into wine. Got, Jesus could have done anything. He had, a, he had a ministry that was filled with miracles. But he chose that on his very first, that he was going to do something specific. And at a little wedding in Cana, he was going to turn water into into wine what color is wine red. red and often in scripture wine is compared to blood. Now in all the things that Je- Jehovah could have done in Egypt, the first miracle he does is what he turns water into blood. y'all see a connection there and I don't know how many of you read my, my Facebook post today. Um, but I was just kind of musing on this thought that as those disciples, you know, I just wonder if anybody thought, you know, if, if, if it came to mind at that point or, or maybe just sometime, but, you know, I, I'm just imagining these first disciples and they're finding out this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, but He's also showing them through His life and through His power, He's going to continue showing them not only is He the anointed Messiah, but He is God in the flesh. And as they, he performs this first miracle, he dips down. Uh, he tells the he doesn't do it. He tells his disciples to dip down into the water. And when they pulled it up, it was what? It was wine. And I just imagine that wine spilling over the top and seeing that, that red wine run down the side of those vessels that they were using. And, and uh, all this was in that post. But you know, I was just thinking about. it. I wonder if anybody's mind just kind of flashed back to synagogue where they learn that the first miracle that Jehovah, Yahweh, did in Egypt was he turned the water into blood. And here this man stands doing something they've never seen anybody do before. And, and here's this water being turned into wine. And they're seeing it. I mean, it's it's firsthand. And I just wonder if anybody made that connection or, or just thought about that, even just for a fleeting moment. But I, I think it's, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, Jesus, of course, was not... Uh, Jesus' purpose of course was not to send plagues but to give proof that was his purpose of his signs was to give proof of who he was but I think they are connected and they both point as I said towards the fact that he is God now of course we said the devil loves to mimic things and in verses 22 through 23 we see the mimics we have Pharaoh's amateurs in verse uh, 22 let's read that it says the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments with their wizardry or, or, or magic, they did something of similar sort. And uh, so we see them stand up. We see Pharaoh's arrogance in verse 22. It says, And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. So when his magicians stand up and they, and they do a similar type thing, which, keep in mind, it was on a much smaller scale, right? <laughs> but when they did a similar thing, he just kind of huffs and says, Well, look, Water, if all very that's true somehow they were digging up water we're going we're gonna to see that in just a second and uh, they were digging up water so they evident- I- I'm guessing that if they used water and turned it into wine that it must have been through that process where they, they had figured out that they could dig up this water and, uh, and so regardless we see that when they did this Pharaoh became arrogant and his heart got hardened again and then we see his apathy in verse 23. It says uh, there in, in that verse, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither did he set his heart to this also. When it says he didn't set his heart to this also, uh, it means this, he didn't care. This did not concern him. And so his heart was hardened, and he just kind of walks away from it. All right, God, you're not breaking me today. And, uh, and so he walks away. What? The, right, exactly. Now after seven days, you may have been singing a different tune, right? We see the mayhem in verses twenty four through twenty five. Let's look at the totality. How how big was this? Well, it says in verse twenty four, and all the Egyptians. How many? All. all how many is that? It's all of them, right? <laughs> it, it was the whole land. All the Egyptians. We're searching for water. All the Egyptians were affected by this. We see the desperation in verse 24. It says, And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, and they could not drink the water of the river. And then in verse 25 we see the fulfillment, uh, how long it lasts, in other words, the completion of it. Seven days were fulfilled. After that the Lord had spent in the river. Now it appears in verse 24 that the river itself had turned to blood. All of the visible water uh, around had turned to blood, but they had evidently found this way that they could dig dig down the earth and, uh, and pull water up that way. And you have to imagine that they're still probably not getting a whole lot like that, are they? And so water would have been very, if they had any, water would have been very, very limited. Uh, now, they had to have been able to find some kind of water source. They wouldn't last seven days without any water. So uh, do what? Drink wine? Yeah, there you go, yeah. They may have just been trying to pass the time there, huh? Yeah, that's true. All right, we see the meaning of all this, and, and I just want to very quickly bring in some application here. Now, we're not going to attempt to ask or determine why God to cho- chose to turn the Nile into blood. That's, there's no purpose in that. But here are some interesting facts that are in correlation to this first plague of water. First of all, as we've spoken about a little bit, is uh, the Egyptian deities. As mentioned before, there were actually several Egyptian gods that either provided for or protected the Nile River according to their religions. And even the Nile itself, as we mentioned, was worshipped because it was so vital for life in Egypt. So uh, that that seems like a very good reason for God to attack the Nile first and uh, and just to uh, break the hearts of everybody around. I mean, water is life. And, uh, and so he he attacks that uh, that Nile River first. Now here are some other things that I think are very interesting. First, the, the second thing I want to talk about is the Hebrew sons. What Hebrew sons have I been talking about? If we believed in coincidence, we could say that there is a coincidental connection between Pharaoh's command that all of Egypt use the Nile as a source of death for the Hebrew sons back in chapter 1. you all remember that? When Pharaoh commanded all Egypt to throw every born infant son into the river, okay? And so they do. They chunk all the, the infant sons into the river. And now we see 80 years later, the same Nile is being used as a source, of, a source of death upon all Egypt. Now, we could say there's a coincidence there, but since we don't believe in coincidences, we'll just give all that credit to God. I, I think there is a connection there. Uh, and we're going to find him going back, and he, he, God doesn't forget; He remembers all those things that were said, and He's going to hold them accountable for it as well. All the things that were done, and so I think there's absolutely a, a direct uh, correlation here, where they had given the Hebrews death through the Nile, and so God in turn gave them death through the Nile. Now, there's another thing that I think is very interesting as well, and that is the Hebrew stench. What does stench mean? Turn over to chapter 5 and verse 21. And if you'll remember here, this was after Moses and Aaron had first gone to Pharaoh. Uh, After they had arrived, the Hebrew leaders, if you remember, they they went in and they basically asked Pharaoh, why are you doing this to us? We we don't have time to do all this work. And Pharaoh says, get out of here. You're lazy. You're, You're idle. You're lazy. Get out of here. Go back to work. And when they walk out, they, they, they came and they told Moses and Aaron that because of what they had done, because of their appearance before Pharaoh, that they had caused the Hebrew people to stink before Pharaoh. And let's look at that. Uh, 5 verse 21, it says, "...and they said unto them, The Lord look upon you and judge, because you have made our savor..." What does that mean? Our smell. "...you've made our smell to be abhorred, hated in the eyes of Pharaoh..." And in the eyes of his servant to put a sword in their hand to slay us. Now, in, in essence, what do they say to Moses and Aaron? You made us stink in the Egyptians' eyes. You made us stink. And we see that God answered back with dead fish to serve as a replica of how Egypt smelled to him. Anybody ever smelled dead fish? I love fishing and I love fish. I don't like the smell of dead fish. And I come home and I'll put toothpaste all over my hands and whatever else I could put all over my hands because I hate that smell. Just the faintest smell. And every time you eat. You imagine the whole land of Egypt smelling like not one dead fish but thousands upon thousands that stink.